right, church. Exodus chapter 23. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 23. If you've been with us for a little while, then you'll know that we've been spending the spring, the last several years, probably since 2016 or 2017 now, going through the Pentateuch. When I say the Pentateuch, I mean the first five books of the Bible. Okay, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So we've gone through the book of Genesis, and in the last few years, we've been working our, cell, our ways piece by piece through the book of Exodus. And so for the next seven weeks, we are going to wrap up Exodus by studying the second half of the book, chapters 21 through 40. But because it's been so long since we've been in Exodus, I thought it would be helpful to begin with a recap. Now, when you're watching a show on Netflix, how does it always begin? It starts with previously on blah, 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 whatever it is, like previously on Friday Night Lights. And if you've been watching and you're like me and you're impatient, you probably just click skip recap. Well, you don't get to do that today, okay? Because we are going to start our sermon today by saying previously in the Pentateuch. So here's how the story begins. God makes a world. It's awesome. He creates two people, Adam and Eve. He puts them in that world with one command. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree that I command you. Doesn't take them long to disobey that command. They fall into sin. The whole human race now is fallen into sin. But God makes a promise in Genesis 3.15 that he would redeem the world through the offspring of the woman. So the story continues. And as humanity multiplies across the earth, they only get more and more wicked until the days of Noah, when God said, all right, Noah, I'm going to start over with you and your family. I'm going to flood the world. He does that. Does that solve the problem? Anybody? No, humanity is still corrupt, but God's promise has not faltered that he's going to redeem the world. And so as humanity again continues to spread, God has to help them spread a little bit. You read about that in Genesis 11. But as they continue to spread, God makes a promise to one man. He says to Abraham and his family, through you, I'm going to fulfill that promise. Through you and your family, I'm going to bless the whole world. The rest of the story of Genesis then is the story of Abraham's family. You can read about that through the book of Genesis, all right? Very complicated, messy family history. And long story short, about 70 of them end up in Egypt. And that's where the book of Exodus begins. So as the centuries go by, this family continues to multiply until they become this great nation. And Pharaoh doesn't like it. He gets intimidated by it. So out of his fear, he enslaves the people and they are now in bondage in the land of Egypt. And they cry out to the Lord for deliverance. So God raises up a deliverer named you guys are so good, a deliverer named Moses. He brings him to Egypt. He goes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. Pharaoh has a divine stubbornness. You can read more about that. And through 10 plagues, finally, he agrees to let the people go. So the people go. Pharaoh changes his mind. Shocker, if you've read the story. God drowns Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. And now the people of Israel are now delivered from Egypt. And we celebrate, and it's awesome, and they all lived happily ever after, right? Wrong. That's what we studied last year. Last year, we went from the Red Sea to Sinai. We saw this journey that they had that was marked by grumbling and complaining because now they're homeless in the desert, and they don't know where they're going. 
but the Lord provides for them. He rains bread down from heaven and he makes water come from rocks and he brings quails so they can eat meat and all of this stuff. But yet they continually complain and grumble. But they finally make it to Mount Sinai where God enters into a covenant with them. And in chapter 20, which is where we left off last year, he gives them the Ten Commandments or the fundamental responsibilities of the covenant. So I hope that you've enjoyed going through 58 chapters of the Bible in about uh, three minutes. You guys are probably thinking, why on earth does it take you 40 minutes to get through a few verses sometimes? Well, but here's the deal. We've seen where we are, but where are we going? We're going to finish the book of Exodus in the next seven weeks. And here's what I hope we get out of it. You know, when we do a series like this, is it, is it our hope that we'll just learn about some really cool Bible stories? You know, we're going to talk today about Moses throwing blood on people. We're going to talk in a couple of weeks about the golden calf incident. We're going to have that famous story where Moses beholds God's glory and more. We're going to learn about the tabernacle and this construction plan and how it was built and what its purpose was. What's the point of all of this? Why study this? We're going to see why. God redeemed Israel. You see, so far in Exodus, we've seen that God redeemed Israel. But now we're going to see why. God redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt that they might worship him alone in the way that he has prescribed in his presence. And church, I hope that we'll see over the course of the next seven weeks that that is why God saved you and me. God saved us that we might worship and serve him alone in the way that he has called us to. God is creating a people for himself to worship him in his presence. And I believe the second half of Exodus is all about worship. What we're going to see this morning is that the basis of their worship, the reason they can come to God and worship, are his covenant promises that he had made with them. We're going to see in the tabernacle God's design for worship, that God takes worship so seriously that he gives chapter after chapter after chapter of detail on the way he is to be worshipped. We're going to see worship gone tragically wrong in the story of the golden calf as a picture of you and I in our sinfulness. We're going to see the result of worship as Moses comes face to face with the glory of God and he is transformed radically. We're going to see what worship looks like practically when these people give sacrificially and they serve so that the tabernacle will be built. And finally, we're going to see this picture of worship in the end when the glory of God fills the tabernacle at the close of the book as a foreshadowing of the day that we will be with God forever. This book is about worship. That's why we were saved, that we would worship and serve God alone in the way that he has called us to. Now, I wanted to give a quick disclaimer before we jump into the text this morning. We are going to cover 19 chapters in seven weeks. It's going to feel like we're flying, okay? So just to say, we're not going to be able to go verse by verse very thoroughly through these passages of Scripture unless you like three-hour sermons. Some of you guys are excited. Some of you are looking for the back door. Uh, What we're going to be doing is more of a 30,000-foot view in a lot of these sermons. And what I would do then is I would encourage all of you to study this section of Scripture on your own to read through the whole book of Exodus in your small group, to study this a little bit more in depth than we're able to on Sunday mornings. But this morning, here's the point that we're going to see from chapters 23 and 24. Here's the main point this morning. It's real simple. 
God is always faithful to his covenant promises. If you don't take away anything else this morning, take away that. That our God is always faithful to his covenant promises. So let's start chapter 23, verse 20. Let's read this together. The word of God says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and all the wild beasts multiply against you little by little. I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out from before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And so, Father, we thank you this morning that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We thank you, Lord, that your word is more powerful than any two-edged sword. And I pray that your word would do your work in and through us this morning. Help us to understand this word and use it to make us more like Christ by the power of your spirit. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What we see and what we just read is that the conquest was promised. The conquest was promised. Now the conquest, uh, in biblical history, it's the period when Joshua and the next generation takes the people into Canaan, into the promised land. God is promising the conquest in this section. Now, to back up a little bit and give you a little context, after giving the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, chapters 21 through 23 of Exodus are called the Book of the Covenant. The Book of the Covenant. What's happening there is in the book of the covenant, God is further spelling out for Israel what it looks like to live in light of the Ten Commandments, what it looks like to live in relationship with God. And what we just read was the epilogue, if you will, to the book of the covenant, the promises attached at the end of it. I'll let you guys study chapters 21 through the first half of 23 on your own. And I wanted to start here with God's promise to Israel of the conquest. There's three aspects to this promise. First is that God's presence was promised. God's presence was promised. Look with me at verse 20. He says, Behold, I will send an angel before you to guard you on the way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. So God promises to send an angel to bring the people in the land. But I want to spend a second here. Who exactly is this angel? 
you know, there's this mysterious figure that keeps popping up all throughout the Old Testament, often called the angel of the Lord or the angel of Yahweh. You know, I've been reading in my quiet time, just finished Joshua. He pops up in chapter five and I'm reading Judges now and he pops up there and we see this figure, even in Genesis, the angel of Yahweh. Who is he? Because there's an interesting thing about him. He's called an angel or a messenger, but he often speaks as if he were God. And when people see him, they say, I have seen God. And and listen to how this text describes him. It says, he won't pardon your rebellion, which implies that he's able to do that. Can human beings or mere angels forgive sin? No, only God can do that. He says, he won't pardon your rebellion for my name is in him. That same name that he revealed to Moses in the burning bush, the same name is in him. That's the third commandment to honor the Lord's name. And notice this. I love this. God says, if you obey his voice and do all that I say, mid-sentence, the pronoun switch, from he to I. What are you getting at, Pastor Nate? Why are you amounting all this evidence? Here's why. A lot of interpreters think, and I agree, that this angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. That this is the second person of the Trinity. This this is the one who is both God and with God. The one who represents God. The one who reveals God. Listen to the significance of this. Jesus is God's representative who even before he became human was active in guiding God's people. What's the significance of this? It's this. God doesn't just tell them, hey, there's your land, go get it. He doesn't even say, I'm giving it to you. He's saying, I'm going to go get it for you. I'm coming down and I'm going to lead the way. God goes before them to give them his promises. I mean, it says in verse 20, the angel will bring you to the place I have prepared. And then in verse 22, God says, I will be an enemy to your enemies. God himself is going to be the warrior who fights for them. So church, you can be encouraged this morning for this reason. Because under the old covenant, God promised to go before his people, to take them into the promised land But in the new covenant, God lives within us by the Holy Spirit. He lives inside of us. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in your heart. So God is always with us. That same Spirit who lived in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle that we'll talk about one week next week, and only once a year the high priest could enter into it, now lives inside of us. And we have 24-7 access to the Holy of Holies. The Holy Spirit every day leads us, guides us, protects us, sanctifies us as we are journeying toward our own eternal promised land. Some of you guys need to hear this this morning. You are never alone if you're a Christian. You're never alone. God himself lives within you. But the next thing we see in this text is God's warning given. God promises his presence through the angel. But next we see his warning. Look at verse 24. After the angel brings you into the land, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. And then again in verse 32, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. God sternly and repeatedly is warning them against compromise. 
He is warning them against idolatry, against worshiping the gods of the pagan nations around them. As we read through the Old Testament, this was Israel's besetting sin. And guess what? It doesn't take them that long to fall into it. In two weeks, we're going to see that. We're going to talk about idolatry a lot two weeks from now when we talk about the golden calf incident. So I'm not going to go too deep there this morning, but I do want to say this. Notice what God says to them. He tells them there can be no compromise here. No half measures here. Look at this. He says, make no covenant with them. He says, utterly overthrow them. He says, break their pillars in pieces. Our God will not tolerate rivals for his affections. The command here is to be totally different from the world around them, from the gods of the nations around them. In church, in the same way, we are called to be different. As Christians, we cannot compromise with the world around us either. The Word of God says in 1 John chapter 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And by the way, when he says do not love the world, he's not saying you need to go live off in the woods and be a monk or something. He's not saying that you need to abandon the world. As followers of Christ, we're called to love the people in the world and to advance the kingdom of God in the midst of this world. When he says do not love the world, he means that we refuse to compromise with the world. He means that we do not buy into the lies that this world is selling and promoting. It means that we refuse to worship the idols of this world. We might not be tempted, like the Israelites, to bow down before Baal and Asheroth, but we are tempted every single day in our culture to bow down before the false gods of materialism and sex and celebrity and power. You name it. We live in a nation filled with idols, and we're tempted every single day to compromise. But as followers of Christ, we are to be different. We are to be a holy people. So let me ask you this question this morning. Where are the areas in your life where you're tempted to compromise with the world? Maybe it's entertainment. So often that's the gateway. Maybe there's a TV show or a movie or music or a podcast or wherever else that you're engaging with that is tempting you and is influencing you to be more worldly in your thinking and in your feeling. Or maybe it's a person. Maybe there's somebody that you have a friendship or a relationship with that's influencing you and is making you more like the world. You guys know the old adage, right? Show me your friends. I'll show you your future. There's a lot of truth there. Whatever your temptation might be, whether it's being pulled toward what this world teaches about sex or greed or whatever else, let us heed the warning that God gives here. We can't compromise. We can't compromise with the world around us. We must worship God alone. But lastly, in this text, we see God's power displayed. God's power displayed. Look at verse 27. I will send my terror before you, and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets. I love that. We'll come back to that. Before you, 
which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. So God doesn't want Israel to get it confused. They're not getting this land because of how strong they are. It's not by their military might that they're going to enter this land. God's making it clear, I am the one who is giving you the land and bringing you into the land. He says, I'm going to throw them into confusion. And what is God's secret weapon in this text? Is it tanks or AK-47s or helicopters or whatever else? No, it's bugs. He says, I will send hornets before you. And you guys laugh, but it hurts, okay? It hurts. So I had never been stung by anything like that before, like a bee or a hornet. Somehow I'd made it this long. Until last summer, we're in the pool, and I'm trying to flip over one of our little floats, and I got stung on the hand. I don't know what it was, but it hurt. It hurt real bad. Like my hand swells up, and I couldn't use that hand for a while. And a lot of you guys are like, Nate, just give me your man card now. Like it's just a little sting. We got some Gloucester men in here like, I killed a buck with my bare hands, boy. Like, like Nate, you're being a wimp. But listen, it hurts. Now... If just one of them does that, imagine if you've got a whole swarm of them coming after you, which is what God's talking about here. There's no way that Israel could do this on their own. God is going to display his power in driving out the nations all on his own. And he also told them the strategy in verse 29. He said, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, love that phrase. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. In other words, yes, God will display his power in driving out their enemies and giving them the land, but he's doing it in his timing, not theirs. He's doing it little by little. I just got done reading Joshua, and you find out later in the book, it took at least five years. And spoiler alert, they didn't even conquer all of it. It's part of the problem in Judges. But it took them at least five years to conquer what they did conquer. And here's the principle for us today. Our God fights for us, right? We just sang that. We're fighting a battle that we've already won. Our God fights for us. But it happens in his timing, not ours. We like the first part. We don't like the second part. Like, we like the idea that God fights for us, that God displays his power on our behalf, but we don't like waiting because we live in the microwave, fast food, Uber, uh, instant society that we want results and we want it yesterday. But it's God's perfect timing. This is what we have to learn. Maybe some of you came in this morning and you're in a season on waiting for God for an answer, whether it be with the diagnosis, whether it be for a promotion, whether it be in a relationship. You're in a season of waiting this morning. We need to understand that God always keeps his promises, but he always does so in his timing and that his timing is best because what Israel might not have understood is that if he drove them out too fast, they wouldn't be able to control the land. That's what God is saying. So we trust his timing. Guys, I could spend a whole sermon on chapter 23. I hate to keep moving, but we have to. I'm already going late. But now we need to go over to chapter 24. And we need to see God's covenant confirmed. God's covenant confirmed. So the book of the covenant is written. This promise of the conquest is given. Now we're going to turn the page over into chapter 24, where we see God's covenant confirmed. Now, I want to give a little bit of background real quick. I've used that word covenant a lot so far. And I try to be sensitive to not always use, you know, churchy language like that and not explain what it means. What is a covenant? 
Okay, a biblical covenant, uh, the best definition I've read comes from O. Palmer Robertson in his book, The Christ of the Covenants, when he wrote, a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Let's break that down. First of all, a covenant is a bond in blood. It is a relationship that binds two parties together in a relationship of life and death seriousness. That's why it's a bond in blood. Next, it is sovereignly administered which means God, as the sovereign king, declares the terms of the covenant. It's not a contract. There's no negotiating with God. There's no bargaining with God. God sets the terms of the covenant. There are a lot of covenants in the Bible. The covenant with creation in the beginning, the covenant with Noah, Abraham, the Mosaic covenant that we're studying now, the Davidic covenant, and then finally the new covenant that we are under in the church. Covenants typically include promises on God's part, calls for obedience and faithfulness on the part of the people, and then blessings and curses both for obedience and for disobedience. So with that background in mind, that's what a covenant is. In Exodus, God is entering into a covenant with the nation of Israel. We could call it the Mosaic Covenant, or from the vantage point of the New Testament, we call it the Old Covenant And in chapter 24, this covenant is being confirmed. I want to show you four aspects of that very quickly. The first is that vows are offered. Vows are offered. Verse 1 of chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the other shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain in twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. Half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, remember, that's Exodus 21 through 23, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So the law is given. Moses now reads the words of the covenant to the people. And twice here, once in verse 3, and then once in verse 7, the people make vows. They say, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. They make promises of faithfulness, similar to on a wedding day. that The bride and groom give vows as they enter into a covenant. Now, as we're going to see in a couple of weeks, Israel keeps these vows about as long as you keep your New Year's resolutions. How are those going, by the way? So they make these vows, they make these promises of faithfulness, and they enter into this covenant. But I want to show you this next aspect that's even more fascinating to me. And that's the blood that is sprinkled. The blood that is sprinkled. Look at verse 8. And Moses took the blood. So remember, so far, he sacrificed the animals. He threw blood on the altar. What's he do with the rest of the blood? And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. And said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Anybody else think that's kind of weird? Kind of gross? Right? He just takes the blood and he throws it on all of the people. 
To illustrate that, our staff has actually been working very hard at installing some packets of fake blood in the ceiling. So Keith, at my signal, uh, just kidding. It would be really hard to convince people we're not a cult after that. Um, But I want you to think about this. This blood has been thrown on them. What is going on here? Well, remember what we said about a covenant, right? It's a bond in blood. It's a relationship of life and death seriousness. In fact, in Hebrew, when they would use that phrase, it's translated in your Bible, make a covenant, it's literally to cut a covenant. You know why? Because the typical procedure is that you would sacrifice animals as a sign, as a way of saying, so may that happen to me if I am faithless to the covenant. If I don't keep my end of the deal, the penalty is death. That's why a covenant is a bond in blood. So when the blood is thrown on the altar, that represented God. God saying, if I am faithless to my end of the deal, let this penalty be on me. And the blood is thrown on the people is God's way of saying, if you are faithless to the covenant, then that is what you deserve, death. So this story, it's actually referenced in the book of Hebrews. So I'd encourage you, if you have your Bibles open, and I hope you do, to flip with me quickly. Keep a finger in Exodus 24, but flip with me quickly over to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We'll pick it up in verse 19. Verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. I hope that sounds familiar. It's what we just read in Exodus. And listen to how he elaborates on it. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Amen. That's good. The blood that was sprinkled on the people in the altar was there to teach them that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But the problem is that the blood of those calves and goats could never take away their sins. And what the author of Hebrews is showing us is that the sacrifices, all of them in the Old Testament, all of this blood was pointing forward to the better sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ that Christ has entered into this world to pay for our sins. Hebrews 9 tells us that Christ is the better sacrifice than these. And he goes on to say that Christ has entered not into a tabernacle that we'll talk about next week that was built with human hands, but into the real holy of holies, into heaven itself on our behalf 
to stand there as our representative who pleads our case before the Father. And by the basis of his blood, we are forgiven. But why did we need to be forgiven? Why do we need forgiveness? Because like Adam and because like Israel, we've been faithless to the covenant. We have disobeyed God's law. We have sinned against our creator and we have broken that bond in blood. What we deserve is death. That's what we deserve. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. We deserve that penalty for our sin that has separated us from God. But Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He entered into this world and he was the covenant keeper. He obeyed God's law perfectly down to the letter. Yet he went to the cross, offering himself as a sacrifice to put away sin. On that cross, he bore the penalty of the sins of everyone who would trust in him. And three days later, he rose victoriously from the grave so that now when we turn away from our sins, when we trust in Jesus Christ, receiving him into our life as Lord and Savior, we will be saved. Church, that is the gospel. That is what this is pointing forward to. And if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, let me plead with you this morning to run to Jesus. Turn from your sin. Pray, asking Christ to save you and to forgive you. Believe the gospel this morning. And it gets better. Because Jesus died for our sin, we now have access to God. We have access to God. Hebrews goes on to say in chapter 10, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. When you have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus, you now have 24-7 access to the throne room of God. Friends, that's the basis of our worship, the blood of Christ. We have no business worshiping a holy God apart from Jesus. No business. It is his shed blood on our behalf that gives us access to the Father. That's why I love the book of Hebrews as it relates to worship. Worship must be Christ-centered because Christ is the one that brings us to the Father. You know, I, I was a worship leader for many years. I still like to do it from time to time. A lot of you guys know that big passion of mine. And I, I'm fine with the term worship leader, but if I wanted to be, you know, just, you know, annoying and quibble with it, I could quibble with that term. And here's why. Because I'm not the worship leader when I'm up here singing. I ain't leading you anywhere. I'm just a guy with skinny jeans and a guitar. And thanks to Megan, they've gotten a little less skinny over the years. I'm not the worship leader. Christ is. Christ is the one who brings us into the presence of God. Christ is the one who has gone into heaven on our behalf and leads us into the presence of the Father, giving us that access. My job is to tell you about him. My job is to sing about him. My job is to point to him. The gospel is the basis of our worship, that Christ brings us to the Father, but it's also the basis of our prayer. Why do you think we end our prayers with, in Jesus' name? Is it a nice little, just nice sounding ritual that we do, but it really is irrelevant? Not at all. It's the basis of the whole prayer. Why should God listen to me on my own merit? I'm a sinner. I'm a covenant breaker. I deserve nothing but death. He listens to me because I am in Christ, because I'm covered in Christ's righteousness, because Christ has paid for my sin.
That's why we pray in Jesus' name. That's why we worship in Jesus' name, because he brings us to the Father with full assurance of faith. I got to move more quickly. It's all good. It's the second service. Feast celebrated. Feast celebrated. Verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up. And catch this. I'm not making this up. The Bible says it. They saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. What? Could we get a little more detail, Moses, please? They saw the God of Israel. Here's what's fascinating, though. It says twice that they saw God. They saw the God of Israel, and they beheld God. But what do they describe? The floor. Well, thanks, Moses, but I'd like to know a little bit more about God. I don't care what the floor looked like. But I want you to imagine this with me for a minute. Illustration will help. Uh, Think of someone in your mind that's, like, super important to you, super influential. It could be a celebrity, right? It could be a politician, It could be a world leader, whatever. It could be Brock Purdy. It could be anybody that's really important. And imagine that this person invites you to dinner. Now, you'd probably be pretty nervous, wouldn't you, to be eating in their presence. If you're a messy eater like me, don't go for the spaghetti. You're nervous because you're going to be eating in their presence. You'd be intimidated. You have a sense of awe and respect eating with someone in that stature. And could I suggest that you might be a little timid to look them in the eyes? maintain eye contact? What are they going to think about me? Do they think I'm staring at them? Whatever else it might be. Maybe, and just maybe, this is speculation here, maybe that's a taste of how Moses and elders felt in the presence of God Almighty, that when they came face to face with God, all they could look at was the floor. One commentator put it this way, when meeting the heavenly king, their gaze does not rise higher than his feet. But when Moses and the elders met with God, they have a feast. It was common for covenants to be sealed with a meal. We still do it today. It's why you have a wedding reception. We celebrate with a meal. They feasted in the presence of God. And this theme of feasting in the presence of God can be run all through the scriptures. Isaiah 25, there's a vision of a day when all of God's people will feast with him on a mountain. The night before Jesus' death, he's in the upper room with his followers, and he took a cup, Matthew 26, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the what? Blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. When we take the Lord's Supper as a church family, like we did last week, we're celebrating the new covenant in Jesus' blood, but that's not the last feast. There's one more feast that's coming in the presence of God. Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. Just like Moses and the elders feasted in the presence of God, do you understand that you will too one day? All of those who are in Christ, we will feast in the presence of God, but it's better than that. You know why? When Moses and the elders feasted in the presence of God, 
all they could look at was the floor. What are we gonna look at when we're in the presence of God? Revelation 22, four, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. We will not be ashamed to look God in the eye because Christ has made us worthy. And we will feast in the presence of God, enjoying him forever. One more point this morning. I've already gone late, so we're gonna go quickly here. And that's God's glory revealed. We see that in verses 12 through 18. Not gonna read that for the sake of time, but basically what happens is Moses climbs the mountain to receive the instructions for the tabernacle, which we're gonna see next week. And it says that this cloud comes and settles on top of the mountain and Moses enters into the cloud. That cloud, we're gonna talk more about it when we get to the end of the series in chapter 40. It represents the presence of God. So God reveals his glory and Moses enters into his presence. And I hope you know that this is where all of Exodus is going. And indeed, this is where the whole Bible is going. That God's people can once again be in God's presence. It's what they were created for. It's what we were created for. We were made to enjoy the presence of God like a fish was made for water like a flower was made for the sun. We were made to be with God. So with this in mind, let me ask you this. Are you living your life with a conscious awareness of the presence of God? That God is always with us. And how can we do that? You know, R.C. Sproul is one of my theological heroes. And he said that the essence of the Christian life is to live quorum Deo. That's a Latin phrase that means before the face of God or in the presence of God, that God is omnipresent, meaning he is always everywhere. And so we are always before the face of God. I want you to think about this. We might not see that cloud, but God is no less present in this room right now than he was in that cloud on top of Mount Sinai. He is here now. He is here with us always. And let me give you a few implications of that. First of all, be encouraged that as a follower of Christ, God is always with you. So even in your worst moments, your darkest times, God is with you and you are never alone. So first, be encouraged. And second, be warned. The omnipresence of God is either encouraging or terrifying, depending on your perspective. It's encouraging because God loves us and he's always with us. It's terrified because he's there when we're tempted to sin. When we feel that pull towards sin, we should remember that our lives are quorum Deo, that they are before the face of God, in the presence of God. So I want you to ask yourself this question. Use this as a little litmus test the next time you're tempted to sin. When I'm tempted to say this, when I'm tempted to do this, when I'm tempted to think this, when I'm tempted to click that button I think nobody can see and it's late at night, when I'm tempted, ask yourself this question. Would I do this if Jesus Christ was standing looking over my shoulder? Because guess what? He is. Maybe not in the flesh. He will be one day. But in the spirit. God is always with us. Be warned. Lastly, be here. By here, I literally mean here. Like 6686 Hickory Fork Road behind the Wawa. Here. Yes, God is present everywhere. That's the doctrine of God's omnipresence. But, but God, Scripture teaches, promises to manifest his presence in a special and unique way when his people gather to worship him. 
That's why corporate worship is so important. That's why it's the first step in our discipleship strategy here at Coastal to connect with God in corporate worship. Because God works in powerful ways when the church gathers to worship him. So be encouraged, be warned, and be here. I know I've gone late. I'm sorry. But I'm going to invite the worship and prayer team up, and we're going to close with one final thought. Guys, what we've seen in this chapter is the faithfulness of God to his covenant promises. The faithfulness of God to his covenant promises. Though Israel will be unfaithful time and time again, God was faithful. He fulfilled his promise. He brings them into the land, and he will forgive their sins because a Savior is coming who will offer himself as a once-for-all sacrifice for sins. And church, this is what you need to hear this morning. The same God that was faithful then is the same God that's faithful now. The same God that was faithful then is the same God that's faithful now. And God will keep his promises to you and me. Our God promises us that the blood of Jesus, his son, is sufficient to pay for every sin past, present, and future. Our God promises that we have access into his presence 24-7 in prayer and worship because Jesus has entered heaven on our behalf. Our God promises that he will always be with us, that his Holy Spirit lives inside of us to lead us, guide us, protect us, and sanctify us on the way to our eternal promised land. And lastly, He promises that one day we will feast with him in glory face to face. So rest in the promises of your faithful God. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank you. God, thank you that Christ has made us worthy to come before you, that you love us, that you care for us, that you have made us your people. You've made us your children. Forgive us for when we're faithless, Lord. Thank you for Christ, that forgiveness is available in him. And as we go from this place today, we ask that you would sanctify us, that you would lead us and guide us as we seek to honor you, to worship you alone, to serve you with all of our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.